she said that it was so cool to have a guy understand how important women were that it meant a lot to her and i did that's always touched me as something very special that she could understand how important it was that men understand how important women are hey kelsey hey brooke want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode today we are going to talk about a conversation that i had with the first ladies man um all right (laughs) (laughs) that seems odd but okay let's get into this Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 21, First Ladies and Holiday Parties. Ooh, fun! Yay, (laughs) the holidays! I wish we had champagne. (laughs) Oh, I know. This feels like a celebratory (laughs) (laughs) episode. This is very fun. Yes. So I sat down with a man who calls himself the first ladies man. All I'm imagining in my mind is like a bearskin rug and the guy from (laughs) SNL. (laughs) Ladies. Ladies. (laughs) No, his real name is Andrew Oak, and he is a TV producer who did a series on the first ladies and traveled all around the country going to different historical sites that um, were where the women lived or oh. important events. And in first life. ladies being the first women of the United States. Oh. Presidents, wives. wives. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, why did he choose to do that? <laughs> I know. That was like one of my first question that I asked him. This is what he said. Okay, hello, my name is Andrew Oak, and I am the first ladies man. I am a historian, documentarian, former television producer turned public speaker, expert, and virtual rain man of first ladies facts. I gained all this knowledge as a series producer for the C-SPAN and White House Historical Association series, First Ladies Influence and Image. And for that series, along with seven bags of gear, I traveled by myself across the country, planes, trains, and automobiles, almost a boat out to Oyster Island to visit Theodore and Edith Roosevelt, but that got switched, so I had to drive around the whole thing. But um, uh, uh, traveling across the country to go to nearly every home, library, church, cemetery, birthplace, school, train station for every first lady, Martha Washington, through then Michelle Obama, my books, my studies continue on to Melania Trump and will continue to uh, Dr. Jill Biden. Um, Very excited. Every four to eight years, I get to add a chapter of an interesting woman, influential woman, a a remarkable woman, a a woman of leadership and skills and a story of her own to this research and these studies and this ever-growing tale of first ladies that makes me the first ladies man. When you when you call yourself the first ladies man, one would think that maybe it's been a childhood dream or I, I was a history major or couldn't get enough. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in a Maryland suburb. Uh, my mother was a school teacher. Uh, my father and mother both active in politics. Uh, the Smithsonian and all of its resources were the were the location for nearly every high school uh, or school, elementary school, junior high, high school field trip. I went to University of Maryland 
and uh, became a radio, television, and film major. And out of that, I did a lot of different projects. I've done ESPN 30 for 30s, um, worked for 24-hour cable news. I've done PBS documentaries on the economy, um, all different kinds of things. I, did, uh, I worked for Channel One and did uh, uh, news for junior high and high school students. And that took me to South Africa and around the world. And I've been to uh, uh, South America with the uh, Bush 43 administration to do TV along the Panama Canal. And nothing, even in all those great adventures, which included feeding wild cheetahs outside of Johannesburg, never was anything so exciting to me. I've been lion fishing, caught my own dinner lionfish in the Grand came in uh, uh, um, uh, reefs uh, and working on documentaries and, and nothing, nothing took my attention, grabbed my attention like these first ladies. And when I started to realize how influential they were, what a significant part they were in our country's history in the development of the modern world, what the modern world would look like without America, every major conflict, the global world economy, McDonald's, Harley Davidson, Coca-Cola, uh, Apple computers, everything that we enjoy in life, uh, uh, that I enjoy in life. I, 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 I have a, a, a historic Harley Davidson that I enjoy riding quite often. And, and none of that would be possible without America. And none of that would be possible. America wouldn't be possible without these first ladies. And it starts with number one. If Martha Washington had married anyone other than George Washington, if George Washington had fell in love with anyone other than Martha, if the two of these crazy kids don't get together, then America doesn't happen. That's how important she is to the equation. That's how, what a woman of aptitude, what a woman of social standing, what a woman of natural intelligence, when women were not able, legally able to own land or have a job or formal education or anything, this woman helped consult and work with General Washington to form what has become one of the greatest modern civilizations, societies, countries in, in, in the world. Uh, and, and it rests squarely on the shoulders. Not, not squarely, I shouldn't say that, because George Washington is a great man. We couldn't have done it without him. We absolutely couldn't have done it without him. But if George Washington had to stay home and take care of all of the things that Martha Washington was taking care of, he wouldn't have been able to, to ride up and down the East Coast and fight the Redcoats. So Martha Washington brings to the marriage a great wealth, a great social understanding, but a great capability. Think of Martha Washington as the first successful female CEO of the colonies. Her first husband, um, Daniel Park Custis, died when Martha was 26, left her a widow at 26 with four children, two of whom died in infancy. Uh, the other two died, um, sadly, in, in young adulthood. So even the paintings and etchings and, and, and images we see of, of George Washington and Martha Washington children, these are the grandchildren of Martha from her first marriage. If you, if you, put, if you put that all together, um, that... that, that, that um, Martha Washington brought to, 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 the, to the, the union of George and, and Martha Washington um, a massive amount of real estate in Williamsburg, 8,000 productive tobacco acres, which created a small fortune uh, annually from the sale of tobacco back to, the, to, to England and, and within the colonies. She also had about three to four times the Virginia state governor's annual salary in cash on hand when she married uh, George Washington. And so he needed her money. He needed her ability to to finance. I mean, if he if he 
had to stay home and take care of all of the acres and all of the land and the children. And unfortunately, at the time, slaves, um, you know, the, the staff that was that was there, Martha had to manage all this. And that was highly above the expected or learned or trained capabilities of a woman of the time. And even a lot of men of the time couldn't handle that. I mean, it is a massive, massive corporation that is Martha Custis's, the widow Custis's wealth and belongings when George Washington comes into the scene. So that's what he said. <laughs> I mean, interesting. Very um, unique story, I guess. I wouldn't have known all of that about, um, is it Martha Washington? Martha Sorry. Washington. Yeah. yeah. What a badass. The fact that she was able to like be okay with him doing all that. And then not only that, but like it's her money. It's her um, finances on the line. Yeah, but think about women over time in a position similar to her. A lot of men married women with money so that they can get where they're going. Yeah. And just think back. If all those men didn't marry those women and they were allowed to spend their money the way they wanted to, yeah. how much further would we be in this world? Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Okay, so he's interesting. This yeah, is cool. Yeah, he knows so much. Yeah, sounds like he's really done his research. Well, so I kind of sneakily, I wanted to know... I imagine somebody in his position doing the research that he did would have been exposed to a lot of really cool anecdotes. So I asked him to tell me which women he thought belonged in the K-12 classroom. And <laughs> This will be good. Well, yeah, but then he gave me kind of a, a cop-out answer, which is all of them. <laughs> Lame. But of course they all do. I mean, they are they're the, significant. Top, they're the top women. They're significant. But they also, I mean, I think we've talked about this. They get a little overplayed. Yes. Because of their Especially role. in the standards and textbooks. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, great that they're getting played, but there's other women that get missed out because they're getting played. Yeah, totally. So. But he did have a longer answer to that. So all right, all this right. is what he said. Every single first lady has a story. These women are people. They are daughters. They are sisters. They are aunts. They're mothers. They're grandmothers. They live. They laugh. They win. They lose. They die. Um, and at every location I studied, every location I went to for every first lady, and sometimes there were four, five, six locations for a first lady. Um, there were a number of first ladies, the majority of the first ladies that I couldn't name before this. Um, and so each of the locations I went to for each of these first ladies, could the location itself could have been a four-hour documentary because there's so much stuff there and things that you would not know. Um, uh, Helen Taft is a first lady that most people would not name if they were naming 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 first ladies. Helen Taft is the reason why we have a dresses and gowns exhibit at the Smithsonian. In 95% of the rooms that I speak in, 98% of the time, when I say, what's the first thing you think of when you think of first ladies, the number one answer is dresses. Great. We can all agree on that. I then say, do you know who donated the first dress to the Smithsonian? And there's a lot of guesses. Dolly Madison, great answer, wrong. Jacqueline Kennedy, even better answer maybe, and wrong. Eleanor Roosevelt, great answer, wrong. Martha Washington, she's the first first lady, why should she give the first dress? Wrong, 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 wrong. The first dress was given by Helen Taft. Why? 
because Helen Taft was the sitting first lady in 1912, I believe it was, when, when a couple of very forward-thinking society women who were working with the Smithsonian Institution decided to put up a women's exhibit that would feature first ladies. It, they were at a, a luncheon that was celebrating the memory and contributions of Dolly Madison. And the two women walked up to the sitting first lady, Helen Taft. They said, Mrs. Taft, you are the first lady. You have to give us something for our display. It would be incomplete without something from the sitting first lady. So Helen Taft thought, what do I, what do I give? She could have given a pair of shoes. She could have given a letter. She could have given a family Bible, a hat, a purse, anything. And she thought, much as happens with like the prom or your wedding, when a woman wears a dress like that, of that magnitude in public like that, it's kind of it's kind of one and done. You box it up and you put it away. Well, that was her inaugural gown. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to use my inaugural gown anymore. Why don't you take that? And that launched the exhibit that first featured first ladies. And now retroactively and moving forward to the current first lady, Melania Trump, we have a dress or gown that represents every first lady. And that's why the world over, because of the Smithsonian Institution and the American History Museum, when you say, what do you think of when you think of first ladies, they say dresses. And we have Helen Taft to thank for it. And no one, not no one, but, but most people would not name Helen Taft if they were naming first ladies. Helen Taft is also the first of only two first ladies to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery. She's the first first lady to ride in the coach from the Capitol back to the White House on the inauguration. She is the first lady that planted the first cherry blossom tree in Washington, D.C., and people the world over know the cherry blossom trees. Um, Asian decor and, and all things Asia after our help with the Japanese-Russian uh, war uh, at the time, at the turn of the century, um, was very, very popular. And, the, um, and the, 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 the Tafts had spent a great deal of time in the Philippines as, as governor and wife of the governor to put that in order to help democracy and, and all, the, all the stuff that, that America does on the, on the foreign front after um, uh, conflicts and, and wars and such. And they loved their time in the Philippines so much that when they got back and they saw the tidal basin area in Washington, D.C., in complete swamp disrepair, just a mess, they said, well, why don't we make this like one of the nice riverside gardens that we saw traveling all through Asia? And again, Asian culture and, and design and, and, and all things Asian were, were popular at, at the time. And they chose the cherry blossom trees. And Mrs. Taft and the wife of the Japanese prime minister to America um, uh, dug the hole that put the first tree in right by the tidal basin across from the Jefferson Memorial, looking sort of 11 o'clock-ish at the Washington Monument down there. A first lady is responsible for finishing the Washington Monument. After the Civil War, all building of the Washington Monument had, had stopped. And it was Lucy Hayes, another first lady that you would not name if you were naming 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 first ladies. Lucy Hayes, coincidentally also from Ohio, as was Helen Taft, reinvigorated the project to gather funds and put the monument in uh, back in production to, to finish it. And there it stands, a beacon of, of, of Washington, D.C. and freedom and all the other stuff that it stands for. Um, thinking about the first library that was in the White House, that was made possible by Abigail Fillmore. 
another first lady that you would not name if you were naming any first ladies. And she was a former school teacher. She's one of two first ladies that taught future presidents to read and write. She was a school teacher and a librarian in um, East Aurora, New York, and uh, Millard Fillmore was one of her regular students and attendees and visitors to the library, and she actually taught him at one point in time. The other is Eliza Johnson, another first lady that you would not name if you were naming first ladies. Um, Eliza Johnson, that's the, uh, Johnson, um, followed Lincoln after Lincoln's assassination. So he's the 17th president and first lady of the United States. And she taught her husband, Andrew Johnson to read and write in his tailor shop in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, no, Greenville, Tennessee. I'm sorry. Greenville, Tennessee. He was a tailor and he would hang out at the shop afterwards doing his tailoring and people would gather around because he was a neat guy. He could spin a good yarn. He was a great orator. He had great stories. I could relate to this guy. I think he and I would have had a really good time together, Andrew Johnson and I. So Andrew Johnson's in his Greenville, Tennessee uh, tailor shop, and he's talking to all the boys who are coming in and telling them stories and this, that, and the other. And they're thinking, well, you're a great guy. You should run for mayor. You should run for city council. You should." He started locally and had a very successful uh, career in politics that then went on to Washington, D.C. and became the uh, 15th or the 16th, rather, 16th vice president of the United States. And by assassination, became the 17th president after, after Lincoln. But Eliza Johnson, after all the men would go home, and when the tailor shop was empty, I've held the books. I've held the actual school books that she used to teach her husband to read and write because she's like, look, you can't just be this farm boy backwoods tailor that can't read and write if you're going to have this public career and we're going to advance in life. So she taught. So two first ladies actually taught their 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 future presidential husbands in um, in 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 their earlier lives together, but Abigail Fillmore, as a school teacher and a tutor, she's the first first lady to have a day job, an actual paying day job, and become first lady. She was a paid teacher and she was a paid tutor in their in their two bedroom home in East Aurora, uh, uh, New York. She would sit by the fireplace and teach students um, at night after school for extra money. When she got to the White House, she couldn't believe that there was no uh, library. She said, well, there's a library of Congress and there's libraries in D.C. How can you be the executive mansion and the home of the president and not have a library? So she decided to have a dinner and invite all the congressmen and put everyone next to each other that, that disagreed, as Dolly Madison did so, so historically, so famously, and say, let's let's talk about a let's talk about a library. And she got some funding. And she worked with the Library of Congress to split up the collection and add to the current collection in the White House. And one of those bookshelves with the original books from it, from the first White House library, is now in that tiny little house in East Aurora, New York. And I've, I've stood in front of it and pulled, pulled books from the shelves. It's, it's remarkable. History speaks to you. And, and that's, that's kind of to my point when you're saying, you know, who should be taught about in this and why and what's, what's special about each first lady. At each of these locations, something happened to me, something transformative, that, that these women became relatable. They became real. There was something that was like, they're, they're human. They, they, like I say, they, they live, they die, they laugh, they love, they win, they lose. They're, they're human just like us. And something in their lives becomes relatable. And for whatever reason, I'm standing in front of this bookshelf 
in this tiny, tiny little house in East Aurora. And I remembered building a bookshelf with my father the day my Nana died. I was in fourth grade and I was woken with the news. And in fourth grade, you know, I mean, I, I, I'd had goldfish and pets and stuff like that, but this was the first human, this first significant person in my life that had died. And I wasn't really sure how to process it. And my dad just said, let's go downstairs and go into the wood shop and let's, let's make a bookshelf. Your Nana loved books and we'll make a bookshelf. So I made this bookshelf and I still have it. And I kept books on it through, throughout my life, throughout my childhood and, and currently to today. Uh, it's nothing fancy, it's nothing special, but I just imagined my bookshelf and Abigail Fillmore's bookshelf and how special hers was to her and how special mine is to my, me. And, and, and something like that, whether it was a meal or a piece of furniture or a situation or a painting or later on in life, a type of telephone or couch or something, uh, some, something, a school, an experience, something was relatable with these women that I'm like, they, they're, they're people, they're, they're humans, and they've all got a story to tell, but their story is so much more significant because they've got the ear, they share a bed, they are the confidant and advisor to one of the most powerful men in the world, even more so in modern times as we grow and grow and grow and the world develops as it has. So that makes these women the most powerful, unelected, unpaid women in the world. All right. Um, I kind of threw up in my mouth a little bit, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, the whole marrying your student and that type yeah, of thing. Yeah, um, <laughs> it just sat with me a little weird, but I'm in, I guess. I mean, a little, a, kind of a crazy statement, too, that a lot of people didn't know how to read and write. Like, a lot of presidents didn't know. Yeah, I mean, public ed isn't really, like, t- think, like, 1880s. Oh, so, true. Okay. So some of these women are, you know, like, what's so cool? I mean, and Martha Washington's a good example, but then these these later women who are teachers, you know, in the, in the early 1800s, women um, enter the teaching profession. It's acceptable for them to be in there, although, like, college professorships yeah, are okay. denied to them. Um, and so they might, yeah, they might, this is their expertise and, and how fascinating that some of these men didn't know how to read and write and these women saw the potential in them and taught them so they could go off to get office. You know, there we are again, building up a man. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) When we could be, I don't know, the theme of this episode. (laughs) Right. I mean, so much, I mean, he talks a little bit about how these women, if it weren't for them in their passive role in in leadership, right? Their, yeah. their informal role in leadership and facilitating what these men are able to accomplish, the United States wouldn't be what well, it is today. I agree. But I also think about it too is like when people want to go into politics and when they're in college, they're looking for someone to run with them, that peer, that teammate, to be a, a spouse because they need them to get as far as they want to. Um Which is kind of interesting. I mean, I think about Michelle Obama and Barack. Obviously, he didn't go pick her because of the, you know, the running mate that she would be. But he picked her because she was an intellectual equal and would challenge him to think harder and better and faster and stronger. And, like, you just pick your good pair. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is, I think we think of it as the president, but this is the first family. Yeah. And these women are pushed into leadership roles, into humanitarian efforts, yeah, into hosting and all sorts of things that um, this is not a position that we, the American people, get to elect. And so, you know, you really are electing the the, the combo there. Yeah, absolutely. And people like to elect 
a husband-wife. They like to elect a family. Like, they do buy into the whole image. It would be really hard, I think, in America for a bachelor or or a bachelorette to go as far today. Without, yeah, today. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I imagine in our lifetime maybe that will change, but I would be surprised. I think people really buy into the whole concept. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Was there anything that you asked him that he was, like, surprised about? Well, so I asked him, he was talking about the challenge of, you know, you're a woman and you don't, you don't really have much of a say. I mean, you could have a, a marital say, but this is the, your, your spouse's career, which is kind of outside of the, the domestic sphere. And so they yeah. don't really have a say in, in this life that they end up leading. And in many ways, men pick women that, you know, pick wives that would be great partners in the endeavor of being the president. Um, But then, you know, he's talking about how these women get basically just get thrust into this job that they didn't apply for and they're in it and they have to do it. And there's no training. There's no college degree that you can get to be the first lady. And so that's so fascinating to me. So I was curious if there were any women that, really struggled with that role oh interesting and didn't either didn't want to be there or really struggled to be yeah be the first lady like Melania (laughs) yeah maybe (laughs) you know somebody who's really I don't know if other people would agree but I feel like she's a little out of her out of her element she's Um, way beyond her depth but I don't know that she really wanted to be there in the first place yeah she married a millionaire, like a billionaire. She didn't, that was her like, that's what I'm getting into. Yeah. That's what she signed up for. And right. then he was like, yeah, I'm going to go run America. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so his answer was really interesting. This is what All he right. said. Okay. So, so th- there were a lot of women like Mary Lincoln, like Hillary Clinton, like Julia Grant, like, I would even say Michelle Obama that were very in support of their husband's career, uh, wanted him to be president, wanted even, Helen Taft would be another one. Uh, uh, William H. Taft wanted to be, uh, he was a, a lawyer and a judge. All he wanted to be out of life was a Supreme Court justice and his wife wanted him to be president. He ended up to be Supreme Court justice after the presidency, the only president to do so, but he went through the White House first, which pleased Helen very much. Um, Mary Lincoln was courted by Stephen Douglas of the Confederacy. She wrote in a letter something to the effect of um, Abraham Lincoln may not be the best looking guy in town, but he's going to be president one day. Uh, Julia Grant was so upset that her husband did not run for a third term uh, that she cried all the way back from the train from Washington, D.C. to Galena. She loved the White House. She loved the, the lifestyle. The, the, it was the golden era. We'd won the Civil War. You know, the North had won the Civil War, unified and all. So she loved being in the White House so much. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, the, the day after their wedding in, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, she cleared out the dining room of the house that Bill had, had bought for the two of them and said, this is now the war room and we're going to get you elected to attorney general of Arkansas where you failed before. We're going to fix this. We're going to get you in there. Um, she was highly driven and highly motivated to, to, uh, uh, help her husband's career and success and eventual Road to the White House. Ro- Rosalind Carter um, worked the peanut brigade and the, and the campaign that would get her husband elected and teach the world and, and more specifically the country about, you know, a governor from Georgia that no one knew and, 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 and end up winning and beating an incumbent at the time. Remarkable. Um, but then there were women that wanted no part of it. 
There were women that really did not want to be a part of that uh, of that lifestyle of, of that world. Um, and, and I'm going to bring it back to your home state of New Hampshire. Jane Pierce wanted absolutely nothing to do with politics. Her husband was a congressman. Her husband was a soldier. Her husband served in the Mexican-American War. And all she wanted was him at home. She was a homebody. She liked her church and she liked her children and she liked to take her children and walk across the street to church and walk back to the house. She wasn't a big entertainer. She always made sugar cookies and had them fresh for her husband, but wrote, come home soon and stay home. And when he finally did come home and started lawyering again, he was still active in the Democratic Party on a national level. And he went to Baltimore in, in 18, I want to say it was 1843, somewhere around there. He went to Baltimore to the Democratic National Convention, and he told his wife he was leaving to help nominate a presidential candidate. Well, he came back the candidate. And then he did, as I explained before, the unthinkable. He beat all the odds and he won. Well, the, 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 the Pierces had, had horrible, horrible, tragic uh, uh, circumstances when it came to their children. They had three boys. One of them died very young to be expected. The next was the oldest who died well, I, I, well past the age where he should have been. You know, there was a certain time where it's like, well, once they get past three or four, you're out of the woods and they become healthy and strong enough. But young uh, infants and toddlers were very susceptible to disease and infection and, and even um, 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 dysentery uh, would, uh, you know, dehydration would, would kill a child quick, very quickly in the day. There were no blood transfusions. There was no penicillin. There was nothing. Well, their second child, the oldest child, died of, of, of a disease. I forget which disease, but, but very unexpectedly. He should have been out of the woods. He should have been just fine. So the last remaining son was the middle child, was, was Benny. And Benny was, was near and dear to uh, Jane Pierce, as, as any child would and should be, but even more so in that he was the, the, the remainder of three. They spent a lot of time in... Um, I always forget this. It's it's in it's in Massachusetts. It begins with an A. Andover, Andover, Massachusetts. They spent a lot of time with Jane Pierce's sister there. It was even called the Summer White House later on when they would be when they would be uh, president and first lady. They would spend summers there across the street from Jane's sister, right down from the train station. Well, Benny would spend a lot of time with his cousins there and and his aunt and uncle. And, um, and Benny was there because of a funeral. It was death all over the place. Jane and Franklin had to go to Boston for one of Jane's uncle's funeral. They came back. He was elected president, as I said. They came back from this funeral. He had not been inaugurated yet. And they had to take the train to Andover, Massachusetts, to pick up Benny, to come back to Concord, to pack up their house and go to Washington, D.C., to become president. She writes in letters. Benny writes in letters to his mother. Mother, I know you're so sad about dad winning the presidency. Father's going to be president. And I know you don't want to move to Washington. I know it makes you sad. It hurts my heart to see you this sad. I've held these letters. They're gut-wrenching. So on the train out of town, the car holding the president-elect, Franklin Pierce, Jane Pierce, and their only remaining son, Benny, an axle breaks on it and the car 
de derails and rolls down a hill. Benny was basically decapitated in the accident, right in front of his mother. She fainted on the spot. Franklin Pierce picked up his dead son and carried him back on the train tracks to his sister-in-law's house where the funeral would be for Benny. And then she was expected to pack up her house, go to Washington, D.C., put on a brave face and become the wife of the president that she didn't ever want to be. So their presidency, her time as first lady, all of it is tainted by what she blames her husband. And this is a, this has resulted in, in his uh, um, reported alcoholism and trouble with, with alcohol. Uh, she said it was the wrath of God. She said the wrath of God killed their son because he had lied to her about going to the convention and becoming president and all this, it just, it just went on and on and on and on. And it was a, it was a, 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 a horrible exit. She does come out of it a little bit at the end and, and helps with some, uh, some, some anti-slavery movements actually. Um, uh, Pre-civil war, when it was a growing problem, things were starting to bubble and, 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 and get kind of, uh, um, unsettled for, for sure. Um, and being from New Hampshire and being from free States and up North, you know, they, they, they weren't a part of the slavery culture. They, they had, they had, uh, house people, servants and things that were paid. Even the, the Adamses uh, paid African-Americans to work in the house, but they were paid. They were not property. They were not ownership. They didn't, Mrs. Adams wrote that she, it wasn't Christian to, to own another person, no matter what the color of their skin. Abigail Adams, the writings of her, they're, they're, they're incredible. We could talk for 10 hours longer just about Abigail Adams and her letters. But Jane Pierce, so, so that, that would be my answer of, of a woman that, that really had trouble supporting her husband in a political career that she didn't support from the time that he was a congressman. So by the time she gets to the highest level in the land and all of her children are dead and she blames God's vengeance on the lying husband for getting even into the presidency to begin with. I mean, that's, 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 those are pretty, pretty steep, uh, you know, walls to climb. Mm. Oh, that was really sad. <laughs> yeah, it's like such a terrible story. And I, I had actually written a paper on Franklin Pearson graduate school and the the tragedy of not only losing one but three children oh. is just I mean, and, and the, the way that she loses her son is is it's devastating. Yeah. Um I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would want to be in the limelight after that. Grieving in public, it's pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Um do you need a tissue? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's take a break. Okay. And we'll be right back. <laughs> All right. Well, hello there. Do you wish your high school history course had more drinking, more swearing, and more ladies? Well, do we have the show for you. Her Story on the Rocks is a long-form podcast talking about good women, bad women, fictional women, and non-fictional women from all times and places. Basically, each week we pair two women who we research with a themed signature cocktail. You won't be sorry you listened to our latest episode. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Cheers. Cheers. 
Welcome back. Yay. I fixed my mascara. Oh, good. AKA, okay. I don't wear any. <laughs> I don't either. I had a boss when I worked in Boston who told me that I was not dressed or ready for work if I was not wearing makeup. I had a boss once that told me I would look prettier if I wore brown eyeshadow. I was like, is that part of my job? Is that my part of my job? Yeah, like, are you paying I was me like, you know, you'd look prettier if you stopped talking. <laughs> I have not, this is a true story, I have not worn makeup since my wedding day. What? Yeah. Oh, I do wear makeup. Really? I prescribe to it. Okay, fair enough. You're allowed. Sometimes I look ass tired. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you just need a little pick-me-up to make you feel better. Oh my gosh. But uh, quarantining, (laughs) my makeup has barely been used. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) You work from home these days, yes? Yeah. I usually only get dressed from the the neck up, so... (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes there's mascara. Sometimes. Well, I know a few ladies who probably did wear mascara, and oh. they were the first ladies. <laughs> Sorry, back on topic. <laughs> um, so I, the reason I want to talk to the first ladies man at this time of year is that it's holiday time. Yay. And so he told me a little bit about hosting holiday parties at the White House. Oh, I bet there are. I love those specials on, I think it's on TLC when they take you on a tour of the the White House during holiday times. Yeah. And they show you all the trees and the giant gingerbread houses and every room is decorated to the max. Yeah. It's like the best. Oh, so amazing. Well, so this is what he told me about a little bit of the history of holiday celebrations at the White House. You know, a lot of people think that that Christmas trees have been around forever and that they've been part of a first lady's life and and all of our lives since the beginning of time. And we often imagine because maybe we've been to Colonial Williamsburg around the holidays of Martha Washington baking cookies and hanging ornaments. But it wasn't until Caroline Harrison, somewhere between 1888 and 1890, that the first Christmas tree was in the White House even. And it was decorated, but this one uh, with Caroline Harrison was on the second floor, and it was for the family. It was just a private, personal Christmas tree like we would have in our homes. There was no national Christmas tree. There was no Christmas tree on display. There was no themed Christmas decorations. And it wasn't until 1929, so 30, 40 some years later, that Lou Hoover would put the first public Christmas tree on display, which would become to known as the white, as the first lady's Christmas tree in the blue room in the White House. And she decorated it um, for the public to come in and view and celebrate the holidays. But even from 1929, oh, I should also say that, that, that um, uh, uh, just, um, just before that, um, Calvin Coolidge in the in the in the early 1920s, would be the first president, along with the first lady Grace Coolidge, to light a national Christmas tree outside on the mall as part of a celebration, this public display around the holidays. So, in in the, in those mid to late 20s is when it's starting to to, to become a, a a public thing or something that the the first family would include the the public in in their celebrations. But it's not until 1961 when Jacqueline Kennedy in all her infinite style and grace and just wonderful thoughtfulness, decided that she would have a theme and she would theme the White House Christmas decorations after the Nutcracker Suite. And from then on, every first lady 
has had a theme. Right now, currently in 2020, it is America the Beautiful is Melania's theme. And it's a beautiful display. I've seen it. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful time to be anywhere, I think, during, during the holidays, um, the, the, the winter holidays, uh, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, you know, everything. It's just such a, a time of, of thoughtfulness and, and, and love and, 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 and community and things like that. And to see the, the executive mansion decorated as it is, you know, one of the, one of the really, really nicest, most beautiful displays I ever saw was never seen by the public at the time. And it was when Mrs. Laura Bush uh, decorated in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks. And because of security concerns, the public was not allowed into the White House. So she put the decorations up and made a video, you know, and all the stuff that you would expect to do and try and keep get, you know, so everyone, the whole country, the world was trying to rally around the United States and get past uh, 9-11 and figure out, you know, who the enemy was and what had happened and how the attacks went, you know, everything, you know, from September to December, we knew nothing. There was, there was, there was no new information on it. Um, <clears throat> and her theme, Mrs. Bush's theme was home for the holidays. And she had represented on that first lady's tree in the blue room, a, a, an ornament that, that celebrated every president's home, whether it was Monticello for, uh, for um, uh, Thomas Jefferson or a log cabin for Lincoln or whatever they had. She had a, an ornament on that tree for every president's home or hometown. And then later on in the, in the uh, early 2000s, when the George W. Bush Museum was opened in Dallas, she put that uh, tree on display in a 9-11 exhibit and it was kind of, it was, it was, it was, um, it was very touching. I was there, I was there for that, uh, the year it opened and when that was on display as part of the 9-11 exhibit to see what that tree meant and, and what it still means today. It was, it was a beautiful thing to, to see and, and, a, and a lovely display put together by Mrs. Bush. Um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's a nice time for, for first ladies to express that type of appreciation uh, for the country and its citizens and the world and our different leaders and different thoughts and, and views to put all these ornaments and represent and, and have people come through the White House to see and celebrate together. It's, it's, it's a lovely time to be in Washington, D.C. Okay, so how do we get this into a class or where does like this fit in or do you sparse first ladies all over the place? Well, it's like a sprinkling of first ladies. It's so challenging because I think about in history class how there's, there's sort of like this narrative that you're trying to tell. And a lot of times women's stories are personal stories yeah. that maybe the public wasn't aware of, or if they were, it wasn't necessarily impacting like national politics very yeah. much. Um, and and so I think that might be a barrier to getting them into class. Okay. I think, though, that kids appreciate, and I think we all appreciate, the anecdotes that he was able to provide in yeah. our conversation. And so I'm hopeful that teachers will take those anecdotes, add them to their direct instruction. Yeah. And, um, well, and similar to presidents, not all of them are notable. Right. So, you know, you, you're not trying to bring every first lady into a classroom, but when it makes sense, like – uh, Roosevelt, right. you know, like the the ones that impacted a circumstance or changed parts of the world as a humanitarian or as the first lady. Yeah. Makes sense. Get those ladies in. Um, but I also think, though, that similar to like in a world history class where you can um, look at and question the 
culture that you're studying, I imagine that you could also step back and for each unit that you're learning about, every time you're, you get to a new era in history or a new topic, you could pause and back up and say, okay, well, who's the first lady at this time and what's going on with her? And what is, you know, what's her life? What's her role about? Um, and, and how does she play support Uh, involve herself in the politics at this time. So I've made a lesson plan that is kind of generic for Mm -hmm. whatever you're learning, like whatever topic you're learning about, to give kids a chance to research the first lady and learn about her role during this time period. Well, that's kind of fun. The other thing that's really neat is he made these, um, he participated as a producer in making the first lady series that's up on C-SPAN. Oh. So I've also put a link to that series on our website for for people to check out. Well, and then, now we all have an excuse to watch C-SPAN. Yeah, <laughs> you, that's correct. Wasn't, wasn't <laughs> on top of my list, but sure. But sure. <laughs> um, and then they also, he actually wrote a book, a two-part series, two-volume series on the First Ladies himself. Oh, okay. And so you could um, order his book, and I think that could be a really cool thing to incorporate into a class. Very cool. That's fun. Awesome. Thank you, Kels. Yeah. Hey, Brooke, thank you. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Anker. <laughs> See you next time. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, visit our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Remedial Herstory. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Patreon allows you to sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to bonus materials, extended episodes, insider information, and gear. Give at whatever level you can. Patrons who give at the $25 tier will receive a Remedial Herstory mug and a booklet of all the Remedial Herstory lesson plans and resources. This episode is sponsored by our patrons. Thank you to Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio. Sarah Reardon from New Hampshire, Leah Tanger from Connecticut, and Bridget Erlinson from Connecticut. You guys make this show possible. for listening to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.